Welcome to Hashtag Jazz, the family-friendly Grow a f***ing pair Podcast exclusively about Utah jazz basketball I hate this history class From two of the most Emotionally unstable Guys in the business And now, here are your hosts Jason Walker and Trey Sanders Hello everybody, thanks so much for coming back Uh <laughs> The the last week didn't go nearly as well as Trey and I hoped after seeing that Game 1 debacle. Uh, game 2 pretty much went exactly the same way as Game 1. Game 3 was interesting, though. There was a whole lot there. I watched uh, pretty much the entire game. I wasn't you know, busy doing work or school or whatever, so I, I did get to watch the entire game. And I have plenty to say about it, but I know Trey does as well. Um, oh, very much. Yeah, there's just so much to go. The, the the main story really was the defense that Utah had, I guess, did on James Harden. Uh, from watching Game One to little bits and pieces of Game Two, and then all of Game Three, I, you definitely see that their game plan improved in guarding James Harden. It wasn't just James Harden missing shots, which there was some of that. Obviously, you don't go, you don't start 0 of 15 without just missing some shots that you should make. But Utah's defense was so much more crisp than in game one. They weren't doing the... They were still trying to do the force him right, but they were doing it better. It was a lot more like what you saw Milwaukee was doing. It was less, I'm playing on your back left hip, and more of, I'm forcing you right and actually taking away options from you. And then the rotations were so much cleaner, and the rotations onto the guys he was passing to was so much better. You know, I, I know there were still a few... Uh, you know, a fair amount of lobs to Clint Capella for really easy dunks, but those felt few and far between, mm-hmm. and nobody else was really stepping up to to beat the Jazz. There was nobody else that, you know, they were just neglecting who was killing the Jazz on um, for the Rockets on offense. So I felt the defense was so much more improved and that pretty much everything went perfectly. You couldn't draw up a better defensive game for the Utah Jazz. What did you think, Trey? Yeah, we were talking about it. Like, if you're gonna do, if you're gonna do this uh, guarding him on his left hip type thing, everyone else has got to be there to cover the cover the gaps, and they did that. I also loved that they came out and just bullied him. <coughs> you know, pretty much through the three almost the entirety of the game, and they did not make it easy on James. They didn't make it easy on anybody. They were they they was they were mucking it up. That's what they should have been doing since game one. Because they know how good they are, um, yeah. I, it was just an awesome effort. I loved seeing Harden, especially not getting the calls that he usually gets, and it lo- and he was frustrated, and it was awesome. Yeah, and that's the thing with James Harden. It's so much more satisfying when you watch James Harden because he's a guy that's he's the pretty boy of the NBA, and that can be used in a number of different ways. You know, as far as him being able to score and being a, one of the faces of the NBA to the fact that he's really, really soft. Uh, he's a guy that when things don't go his way, you see him like every dead ball. He's in the ear of the referee mm-hmm. without question. So the first thing he does, he goes over to the referee and who knows what he's saying. Uh, but it's something about, oh, you got to give me this call. You got to give me this. Watch for this. And every player's going to do that. I mean, if you watch for the jazz players to do that, Ricky Rubio does it. Rudy Gobert does it. You know, Everybody does. I don't know if I see Donovan Mitchell doing it too much. Obviously, every player will go and talk to the refs, you know, say something to him. 
Joe Ingles does it a lot too. But it, it's something that James Harden is relentless at. And when you see him having a really bad game, which he's had a, f- a few against the Utah Jazz, which is when I've watched him the most. But when he's having a bad game, he goes in just flopper mode where he'll get points in any way he can. And it's basically at the free throw line. James Harden made three field goals uh, against the Jazz in game three. He had 22 points. Yeah. That's just... If that doesn't, if that isn't indicative of who James Harden is as a player and what he's looking for out on the court, I don't know what's going to. It's who he is. When things aren't going his way, when he's having those bad nights, he doesn't try and shoot his way out or create different ways to help. He does that some because he did have 10 assists, but he tries to get to the foul line. He doesn't try a new creative approach. He just goes to his one backup, and that is get to the free throw line, which it works. I can't fault for fault the guy for using a method that works it just becomes really hard to respect him uh, i mean for like go ahead, go ahead. oh no all right i'll go i i, I did the one thing i want to say because there are guys i dislike in the nba there are plenty of them james Harden's one of them i really hate steph curry and i really hate uh, kevin durant and there's a longer list but with steph curry and kevin durant i respect their game I have to respect them because of how good they are. They play the game well. They play the game right. And sure, they'll get their superstar calls, and there's some flops on their part. Yeah, pretty much every player does it. Again, guys in the Jazz do it. But they're good. They don't rely on constantly wanting to the refs, constantly trying to manipulate the game in their favor without having to put in extra effort. They put in the work, and they play well, and they play outstanding on both ends of the floor. So I can, while I don't like guys like Steph Curry or Kevin Durant for a multitude of reasons, I can respect their basketball game and for how good basketball players they are. I can't respect James Harden because he's, for basically just the reasons I explained, he doesn't try and play basketball. He tries to manipulate basketball to his favor. Yeah, he does. I mean, I... He is a great talent offensively. I mean, the dude's got a dead-eyed step-back three, which I'd argue is still a travel. Um, but, yeah, at the end of the day, I just it's so it just ruins the game if you're just watching one guy. He's not, it's not his night offensively. He's not hitting the shots that he's used to making. So he just starts falling to the ground and trying to play an acting job, and then he has to complain when he gets fouled calls on him. I'm surprised he didn't fall, foul out, honestly, because he had five, five fouls by the end of the game, all because he can't play defense. And when it looks like he plays defense, he just jumps a gap and steals the ball. That's fine. That's part of defense. But, yeah, it, it, it just ruins everything because, to me, if – and. I don't want to try to sound like an old person or not, but people that grow up watching the game, when I was growing up watching the game, my my idols were John Stockton and Karl Malone. Those guys were tough as nails, didn't take shit from anybody, took the hits. I mean, they, they did their fair share of complaining, but it was because that was a more physical age of basketball, right? Whereas now we're like in this sissy era of basketball where if you breathe on someone, you, you're going to be up in arms looking for whatever call you were wanting. James Harden, everything that doesn't go right for him, he has to complain about to the refs. And he has to say, oh, I didn't do this or look at this. Yeah, like you said, he, he goes and just tries to get the refs to get look at what he's seeing or whatever. 
There was that instance. It was a fast break. It was one of the few fast breaks that James Harden had on his own. Royce O'Neal comes up and grabs him in the back and holds on to him because he was like, I don't want to hurt you, but I'm fouling you really hard. And James Harden actually, like, if you watch on the on the broadcast, if you go rewatch it again, he like he get he like looks like he's getting up really fast, and then he goes back down like, oh, oh, feel bad for me. A whole, I'm just like, are you kidding me? The whole reason he was doing it is so that he, the refs could be like, oh, he might be hurt. We need to get a flagrant just to change the outcome of the game. Like, let that happen naturally, you dick. I hate it. Like. You are on the ground. If you are legitimately hurt, then that's one thing. But if you're not hurt and you're just trying to be an acting baby to try and get the refs to feel bad for you, that's terrible. I don't have any respect for anybody who does that. Yeah, it's one of the many things I have against soccer. Well, probably the one thing I have against professional soccer. I shouldn't say many things because I actually really like soccer. But you, you see, guys, they'll go down and they'll... They'll milk the injury. There are a thousand and one clips on the internet of guys flopping hilariously. Mm. And James Harden does. We, we joke about people in basketball flopping like soccer players. Well, James Harden does. And that stick where he went on the ground, like that's basically my same thoughts on there, where he purposefully fell to ground. Like, sure, Royce fouled him. Yeah, duh. We all saw that. And he did try to keep him from falling down. You know, I'm going to foul you, but I'm going to foul you nice. Uh, kind of like you do almost in pickup. But then James Harden tries to sell it, and he fakes an injury. Yeah. And I was just sitting there watching him like, is the dude really injured? I'm like, no, he's not injured. He's he's playing the the injury card. And yeah, sure, sure enough, after he pretended his leg was injured, like you get up and he's limping and all that kind of stuff. It's like, <sighs> dude, nobody believes you. Well, I guess there were some people that believed him, because like, I saw them on Twitter, but it's like, you, you really shouldn't believe James Harden at this point when he fakes an injury. Like, unless you see his leg bend at an awkward angle, don't believe when he's injured his leg. Because he probably hasn't, because he's trying to gain referee sympathy. And I, I know that, you know, this rant we sound really salty about James Harden, but the frustrating thing is that, I think, like you said, Trey, Harden is a talented offensive player. You don't score 36 points a game by flopping and getting free throws. You do it by being an extremely talented offensive player with a you know, very deep bag of tricks that he can pull from. And it's frustrating because you see a guy like that who feels like he has to manipulate the rules and be a flopper and all that to win. But, like, why? You're good enough to be a superstar in the NBA. You were a superstar before you had to do all these things, or I guess kind of he, he didn't, he was able to build himself to be a superstar without all this whining and flopping. That is the most frustrating thing, because I think we went on a, a, a rant against Russell Westbrook last year where he is, or I think I said, he's probably the most talented player in the NBA and could be the best player in the NBA if he fixes this, this, and this. James Harden's a very similar way where it's like, yeah, he's easily one of the most talented players in the NBA, but it's frustrating to see him become such a detestable player because it ruins the game. It ruins your enjoyment. Instead of watching excellent players make excellent plays, you see this guy lying on the ground pretending he's injured, flopping, going over the refs and whining. That's not fun to watch. And that's the biggest problem I have is that you have such potential 
to be such an enjoyable play. Those step-back threes are electric when you hit them. But then to go over and whine at the referee or, like, fall down like he's had his head chopped off after taking one of those step-back threes, that's not enjoyable. No, it's not. And you know what? Like, as much as I, as much as I hated Kobe Bryant when he was still in the NBA, he was that type of player who, if he got – if if he may have sold some calls here and there, but that that's selling it. It's not like just uh, crying about it, making it look like, oh, I'm hurt. Kobe never did that. Michael Jordan never did that. Shaquille O'Neal never did that. Charles Barkley maybe did that. John Stockton never did that. Karl Malone never did I could keep going down the list. Like, there are players that were offensively just phenomenal players. Michael Jordan especially. And not once did you ever see Michael Jordan try to pretend that he was so hurt that he was trying to manipulate the refs into feeling bad for him. Like, that's what pisses me off the most. And then there's these kids that are watching the NBA, watching basketball up and coming. They're going to learn tactics like this and use it in, like, pickup games or high school games or wherever. And people are just going to get pissed off. Like, you, you have a bunch of pissed off parents in the stands. Like, you know, like, why are, why are we enabling sissies? I just, oh, I hate it so much. It irks me. And I really hope that, I, I, sw- I hope that the NBA implements some kind of rule changes because the nice thing is the silver lining of last night, I think, with the Harden bullshit is that um, the refs swallowed their whistle on a lot of it. And I liked that. They were yeah. letting him just fall on his ass as hard as possible. And he's just got his arms up in the air and the play continues. I loved that. But in most instances, we weren't going to have that. I think maybe the technical that uh, Quinn picked up for some BS call that James Harden hanging on to Donovan's hips on a, a dunk attempt pro- probably swayed things that way for us, which I'm grateful for, but yeah, it was so nice to not see it because I'm so tired of this sissy crap and the NBA needs to come up with something better, especially for James Harden to stop manipulating and breaking the flipping rules. I almost said the actual F word there. <laughs> Try not to. I'm very, yeah, I'm very uh, passionate and pissed <laughs> off about this as you can't tell. Yeah, I don't think the NBA is going to do much because again, Harden is the pretty boy of the NBA and one of those things is... Be- you know, he's one of the faces of the NBA. He's on the commercials. He's got the big shoe deals. He's an MVP candidate, so he makes the headlines. People want to hear about him. Um, and until there's a fan outcry in, in the form of losing money, then I don't think the NBA is going to do anything about this because it's more of a... It's not so much a plague as much as some of us would uh, consider it, you know, flopping and being a, a sissy out there on the court it's just kind of a problem the nba is willing to deal with because the ratings and the offense and all that see and that that's the that's like a catch-22 man because you're making so much money off of watching james harden just flop around like a fish i used to think Derek fisher was the worst flopper i've ever seen james harden has topped that by like a hundred times yeah definitely especially because it's an integral part of his game which you know Again, all pretty much all players flop. And, you know, I when I've played, uh, I don't play any basketball that has referees anymore, so flopping's not a part of my game at all. But uh, in some soccer games, you know, there's a bit of embellishment there. Uh, not too much, because I don't, I still don't. It's not quite a part of my DNA, because I haven't played a ton of competitive sports with referees. So 
again, but when you're playing in professional leagues like the NBA or really any league, there's a level of embellishment. Every player does it. Uh, again, watch any jazz player. There's some of it there. It's just kind of part of the game. It's part of what you do in general. It's going to happen no matter who you are. But when it's integral to your game, that's when it's annoying. It's part of who you are as a player. That's unacceptable. And, yeah. I, I will say one note. You mentioned that Quinn Snyder technical. That was that might have been one of my uh, low-key favorite parts of the game. Uh, just because Quinn Snyder just didn't, didn't just get ticked. He walked five feet onto the floor and let the ref know how ticked he was. Mm-hmm. And probably dropped plenty of cuss words. Like, the second I saw him out there on the floor, I was like, oh, yeah, that's a technical foul. But just the fire and, like, Quinn Snyder did what every fan wanted to do. He wanted to, he wanted to get out there, scream in the referee's face, and say, you just done effed up real bad there. Yeah. Yeah, and I love yeah. that he's not afraid to do that. Because you don't see him do it that often. But, man, a pissed-off Quinn Snyder is a scary sight. <laughs> well, that's the thing is that coaches, you know, I don't think coaches plan those kind of things in advance. No. But every once in a while, every coach feels like maybe you got to give one or two of those. Because Jerry Sloan earned himself a few ejections and a few technicals in his time. He he wasn't, you know, unwilling to, you know, you know, give the referee more than a piece of his mind. And that can fire up a team. When you see your coach get that, you know, out of his gosh darn mind about something, you see his passion, you think, all right, let's pick it up. You know, let's let's do this. Let's get on this. And you can kind of see that from the Jazz because they started playing a little better and they got a few more beneficial calls from the referees or no calls or whatnot. I think the next two possessions they got fairly friendly calls. Uh, so sometimes it helps. Yeah, sometimes it does. I mean, but those are things that you earn. And I, I kind of want to rewind just a little bit because there are, like, Donovan Mitchell, he doesn't flop. If he gets hit, he tries to sell it, make it look like it was more, you know, it makes it look like it was a foul. Because in most cases, if you're going up or they, they brush your arm, it's still a foul. But sometimes the refs don't see that. So you got to make sure that they see it. But um, on the flip, the other part of this is, my, Donovan Mitchell, you never really see him complain because if he screws up or he misses a shot or he didn't get the call, whatever, he's on the other side of the floor ready to play the next set. Like, he's ready to go. He doesn't really say much. I think I've seen, obviously, this has been a long season, but I, I maybe a handful of times, maybe count on one hand how many times Donovan Mitchell has actually legitimately complained about a missed call or a call against him. Yeah, and that, that definitely is something I have noticed and it's something you love about him. He's not a complainer. He's a well darn it, I screwed up, I'm gonna go do i I'm gonna go do better. Yeah. Next and even play. when he succeeds, yeah, and even when he succeeds, you know, he throws down a dunk, you know he's gonna do maybe a little tiny bit of showboating, but then he'll run down the court and you see he's got this face on. He's not doing the you know, all the celebrations, you know, three in hand in the air or, you know, the eating a bowl of cereal pantomime or whatever the people are doing these days. Uh, he'll go down the camera pans to him, and he's got a face that looks like he just missed a wide-open dunk. It's like, did did you not just make a big three-pointer? It's like, fire, man. On? Yeah, it's fire. Yeah, and, and you can you can see it in his eyes, and yeah, it, it's there's just a lot of wonderful things you can understand about Donovan, and and that is one thing I want to touch on is that, um, 
Donovan Mitchell, again, he's a special player, and I think we've seen a lot of his weaknesses. I think they were kind of some of his weaknesses were brought to the forefront this season, but he overcame some of them, and he's he's really working on becoming a really good player. And I mean, and you look at Game Three, he had his poor moments. I mean, he scored 34 points. But in the fourth quarter, I think uh, I was looking at the shot chart and I was kind of manually counting it. I think he went 3 of 11 in the fourth quarter. He was having an actually an excellent game in the first three quarters. And then in the fourth, he kind of stunk it up. He missed a lot of shots. He made a few clutch ones, but then he, he missed a fair amount of others. But it's it's going to be part of the journey for him. And I know uh, there was the Kyle Corver quote after the game, which, Trey, I think you're going to want to play here so we can we can listen to that because Kyle Korver, I mean, he had some, it was like after they were done, like doing the reporter's questions, he was like, Hey, I want to say something. And then there was, there was this sound bite from go ahead and play that. Never been around a young player like Donovan Mitchell. I have never seen someone so young take ownership of a team take ownership of his play, uh, do it with charisma, do it with class. Um, I've never seen that in my 16 years in, in, in uh, the NBA. And he, he missed a tough shot tonight, but it's just going to be part of his story. If you've played any meaningful basketball in the NBA, you have a shot like that. If you don't, that means you haven't played in meaningful games or you haven't been trusted by your coaches or your teammates to take that shot. I don't care who it is in history. Everyone has a shot they want back. And this is going to just be part of the story at the end of the day. So I think, uh, you know, because of who he is, he's going to put too much on that shot. We miss free throws. We miss dunks. We miss layups. We miss threes. Um, it was not about that shot. It was not about that shot. We had so many more chances to win that game. Um, but I'm super proud of him. He came out and, like, he, he heard that he hadn't, you know, played as well as he wanted to the first couple games and he put the whole thing on his back and he really he tried tonight and for a young guy 21 years old whatever he is that's really special he's going to be he is on a great path in this NBA and at the end of the day this is just going to be part of his part of his story part of his journey and he's going to keep on building on it so um, I just wanted to say that yeah so obviously some really bold and uh, I guess encouraging words from Kyle Corbett because Kyle's been around some special talent uh, in his career. He was around a, a young Darren Williams and uh, some other players. He was around Paul Millsap as well, you know, some, some good players. I'm trying to pull up. I saw a list on Twitter of players he's been around. But, you know, he's, he's seen a lot of good players and a lot of young players. Mm-hmm. And for him to say that stuff about, you know, Donovan Mitchell, I think it's especially it's the stuff about being a team leader and taking ownership because those are the things you really want to see in a young player. Every year you go into the draft and you will see some of the most exceptionally gifted athletes in the world. Uh, some of the best basketball players in terms of shooting ability, athletic ability, you know, just scouts dreams in terms of length, potential, and all these different things. And Donovan Mitchell was one of those. He's one of those exceptionally gifted athletes. He's a long guard and has a lot of gifts, just like pretty much everybody in the draft does. But every year, you see the cream rise to the top. You see you know, 
the, the talented players or the you know some talented players fall off some talented players they you know they rise to the top and they become stars and in my opinion one of the biggest things and this goes across any sport this isn't just the NBA so much of it has to do with what's above your shoulders you know are you mentally tough mm. are can you be a leader or at the very least can you be you know a solid team player and perhaps most importantly and above all can you work hard to overcome your weaknesses acknowledge your weaknesses and overcome those cuz those are the players that will you know go from being an exceptionally talented and you know high potential athlete to actually fulfilling on that potential cuz there are probably a thousand players you know, or however many players who've been drafted in the last 20 years who had the potential to be the next, you know, great star. There have probably been like 10 or 15 next Michael Jordans since, you know, Michael Jordan left the NBA. How many have there been? One? Maybe two? Depending on what your thoughts of guys like LeBron James and Kobe Bryant and Kevin Durant. So... It's it's really encouraging to see something like that from Kyle Culver about Donovan Mitchell, such a young and talented, you know, up and coming star. Well, yeah, and the whole the whole thing of Dennis Lindsay telling the staff, you know, if you tell anybody or the media, I guess too, if you tell anybody about what we saw today, you're fired. Because that's yeah, I mean that's rarefied air. If you've got your general manager now, obviously we didn't really you know see know exactly what that meant at the time, but even still. A second-year player doing what he has been doing with the pressure that he has on his shoulders each and every night this this season, even last season. The fact that he got to the playoffs twice in his two years of his career is just it's just amazing. And he's only going to get better, which is the scariest part. And he's got the right coach for it because he is the and I, I think they said this on the various broadcasts, uh, local broadcasts where. Donovan just wants to be coached. He wants to be told point blank what he's doing wrong and how he's going like what they what he can do to improve it. And you see him so many times on the sidelines and timeouts or even just, you know, dead ball free throws, whatever. Coach Snyder is talking to him. Whatever free time he has, whatever their that teaching moment is, Quinn Snyder is there in his ear and he's just taking it all in and putting it out there heart and soul and that's that's rare and i love that you know we have a type of player like that it just kind of makes me nervous because we don't have a really good history of uh keeping players so i just really hope that you know we can keep him for as long as possible yeah and i i think one more thing kind of done with mitchell I, i do hope we can keep him but i think one thing about mitchell is you know not just his coachability and all all the things we've already mentioned but you know, the fact that he's, you know, taking the mantle of a playoff team on his shoulders, because not very many young players get that opportunity. You don't yeah. see young stars being able to get saddled with a playoff team on their shoulders and then come through and perform. There's only been a handful of them in the last few years. And you look at a guy like, I know Devin Booker's a guy that gets a, a lot of attention. Kind of next to Donovan Mitchell, there's kind of a feud between Suns fans and Jazz fans over the Devin Booker versus Donovan Mitchell, and the thing is, the Devin Booker his stats dwarf Donovan Mitchell's. Yeah. It, it, at pretty much every single stage, but Donovan Mitchell's leading a playoff team, and Devin Booker's leading a 
what is technically an NBA team. And there's that difference. And, you know, maybe Devin Booker is going to go on and have better stats than Donovan Mitchell for the rest of his career. But Donovan Mitchell can go out there and he can have the potential to be a playoff superstar. And we'll see what happens with Booker. I, I, again, I think we both said we're kind of rooting for the Suns to get back into being a respectable NBA team and not just technically an NBA franchise. Um, that, that, that's kind of one of the thoughts I had there. Well, yeah, I mean, he's going to have better stats, but <laughs> Donovan Mitchell, I'm pretty sure, uh, don't get me, I'm trying to actually look it up right now, but I'm pretty sure Donovan Mitchell has more wins than he does in his four years. I'm I'm pretty sure he does. <laughs> Donovan, well, because he's on a, I th- he, Donovan Mitchell has 98 wins, regular season wins, I believe. I think we won 48 last year, 50 this year, I think. Um... And I think Booker's been on a bunch of 20 and 30 win. So it actually might be kind of close. Kind of close, but I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just a totally different thing. I mean, to be fair, we we got we got really fortunate to get Donovan Mitchell. Um, you know, Devin Booker at his time in his draft class, he was top prospect. So of course, the lottery team is going to try and take him because they want that. You know, they want that production, which good for them. But you got to build around him, and that's why I think with Donovan. You know, we've gotten to the second round last year, and we're not getting out of the first round this year, unfortunately. Um, but at this point, I mean, I, I don't know. And I, I know it's – I mean, it's not too early to talk about postseason because it's right around the corner. Um, that, you know, the, 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 the pieces need to start getting filled around him. Um, we've got a very good core. I mean, obviously, Joe Ingles is here for two more years. we still got Rudy for three or two you know, th- he needs an extra shooter. I, I and we're not going to get another like type of player like a CJ McCollum. If we do, another lucky gra- another lucky grab. But um, y- y- there's so much pressure on his shoulders, and it would help to have that uh, that pressure alleviated from him for the next season because I think that was probably a lot to do with his slow start. I, he didn't really, you know, teams are ready for him now, and he's had to learn how to figure all of that out and be that type of player. You know what I'm going to do? Try to stop me type player. He's not there yet, but I mean, the sky's the limit. Yeah. And one, I do want to touch on that. Cause it's something I really wanted to talk about, but uh, Devin Booker has 87 regular season wins. Donovan Mitchell has 98. Well, there you go. And again, that, that, that 98 off the top of my head. It may not be hundred percent accurate, but I'm pretty sure it is. But on the filling around the team, that that is something I wanted to, to bring up, so I'm, I'm really glad you did, in that there's a lesson that really needs to be learned from this series. Because, you know, there, there's a lot of things that didn't go right for the Jazz. Um, I mean, if you look at wide open shots, the Jazz have shot a percentage worthy of myself in all seriousness in terms of wide open shots. Like, if I went out on an NBA three-point line and shot 100 three-pointers... I might make 18. The Jazz are shooting 18% on wide-open three-pointers in the playoff series. That is awful. These these are guys, when you go out and you watch players warm up, and they're shooting their shots, they make tons of them. They make so many of them, you think, how are these guys missing shots? Like, you, know, you watch Steph Curry, and he's got like 10 feet of space because somehow the defense forgot that Steph Curry exists. It's almost a guarantee. You might as well turn your back and think, all right, yeah, he made it. Just wait for the sound 
of the net ripping. And the Jazz, like, they get a wide open three, and you're holding your breath thinking, this probably isn't going in. There's less than a one in five chance that this shot goes in, and it's Joe Ingles shooting a wide open shot. How often were you nervous that a wide open Joe Ingles three pointer wasn't going in? That didn't happen in the regular season. He gets a wide open shot. It's like, all right, we got three points. That was a good possession. Not so anymore. Um, but, again, that comes back to team building in that the Jazz have been one of the best teams at getting wide open shots. And I don't know if that's either by teams leaving certain guys open, like Ricky Rubio or various players. But the Jazz, I think, oh, I was looking at the stats earlier. I think I've got them right here. Uh, so regular season. Almost 30% of Utah's shots were wide open for whatever reason. I think a lot of that has to do with the system. Some of that may have to do with how defenses were playing us and leaving certain players open. But Utah was like barely above average in making their wide open shots. And that kind of goes to show that this team isn't complete. And the lesson that the Jazz need to learn from this playoff series, they've played Houston twice now in the playoffs. They're probably going to win all of one game in nine appearances, unless they manage to take game four. They're probably going to walk out of two playoff series with Houston with a grand overall record of one and eight. And you know, getting to the second round of the playoffs, getting to the playoffs three years in a row, given some of the circumstances, is impressive. Getting to the second round two years in a row, impressive. But now there's a lesson that needs to be learned. And again, it's that jump from being a playoff team being a generally second-round playoff team. There's that jump from being that team to being a championship contender. And that's the lesson the Jazz need to learn, is how to get there. You know, this past season, we all thought the continuity would work. But it didn't. So now it's time for the Jazz to learn that lesson and not make the same mistakes. Because if we come out of this offseason, and we haven't tried our, the Jazz haven't tried their darndest to improve this roster drastically, not just a little bit. Not make an improvement, a slight point guard improvement here, or a slight upgrade there. If there isn't a drastic improvement in the roster, then Dennis Lindsay has failed to learn his lesson, and that would be really damning against him. For all the good he's done, that would be extremely damning. If he didn't try, if he fails, then that's a different story. But if he doesn't try... That's really bad. So now, are you saying that they need to like kind of move pieces, like get rid of players and add some? Basically, what they need to do is they need to find guys who are going to again make shots. For I guess as as simple as and dumb as that sounds, they got to find that third star. The you know the thing we've been harping on for like two years. And then making sure the rest of the roster is compatible with, you know, shooting, you know, making up for the weaknesses. The weaknesses of, you know, you look at Utah's lineup with Derek Favors and Rudy Gobert, that weakness is floor spacing. Well, they had Ricky Rubio who couldn't space the floor, so that became an enormous weakness. And in the playoffs, your weaknesses get exposed hardcore. Mm -hmm. And they have been in this series. We've been given... Tons of wide-open shots. Almost a third of Utah's shots in the playoffs have been wide open, and they're shooting 
awfully because a lot of those players shooting those aren't actually good shooters. I know Joe Ingles is shooting poor and he's not a bad shooter, but you know, there's going to be anomalies like that, so you have to rely on other players, and if you only have one or two guys who can actually shoot open shots, you know that's not going to work. You need more than one guy to be able to shoot, so the, the roster needs to be constructed in a way that you know, there needs to be an improvement on the offensive end because it's been shown in back-to-back -back playoffs that our biggest weakness is being able to get points when the environment isn't conducive to getting points. So that's the biggest improvement. There's probably some other improvements that can be made. But that, that's the biggest weakness I've seen. And it's, it's shown up in these playoffs. So the lesson that we need to learn is that it basically comes down to that third star and being able to create points in different ways. And so I, I think that's one of the biggest lessons to be learned. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you in as much as, you know, they do need to make shots. It's, it's a make-or-miss leak. you got to have people that hit, that hit the shots consistently, whether it's on, beyond the arc or even getting layups. I mean, I remember, you know, beginning of this season, it still happens here in this series, uh, we're not very good at even getting layups, which is just bizarre to me. It's such it, it's I know it's an easy or a, a more difficult shot to hit than it actually looks. The layup is relatively an easy shot, but you get the wrong angle, whatever. Um, the star thing, though, that's that's I mean, that's trying to find a needle in a haystack, man, because especially you make it to the playoffs, you're in the high lottery pick. So, you know. I mean, off the top of my head, we'll probably, I mean, this is guess, I, I sh should say, not off the top of my head, anywhere between the 11th and 15th pick for the draft. And by that point, I mean, your your options have really dwindled. But obviously, there's certain, there's certain picks, even that are rookies this year, that were high picks that are total busts. So, you know, Dennis Lindsay is, is a very good idea of what he's doing in that sense, hence Donovan Mitchell. Um so I don't know if we'll get that star. It, the best chance we have is either through a trade or something in free agency. Uh, but even that, we'd have to be dishing out some money. We'd have to be trading assets, whatever. Um, I love Ricky Rubio to death. I think that he has been awesome in this playoff series, especially Game 2. He was the engine that just would not stop in Game 2. And he was just as instrumental in Game 3. He didn't hit his shots, obviously. That's not his strong suit, but... With, with Ricky Rubio, he makes the offense run. Um, when he's not on the floor, it's a lot of isolation basketball. We unfortunately don't have anybody that's really all that good at isolation. The closest we have is Donovan Mitchell, but he's not that great as an isolation player. So, yeah, I mean, the, there needs to be some. There needs to be something that you know we fit some pieces around him. I don't think we're gonna get that star at least for you know two to three years. Um, but, yeah, I mean, something consistently is a shooter. That's why we got Kyle Korver. Unfortunately for us, Kyle Korver is getting older, and who knows if he'll even be playing next season. We don't know because we picked him up basically for this year. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I don't know if there's a drastic change that needs to happen because the pieces we have, George Niang, give him – this is – he has been impressive this season. He's – come out and just had these awesome games he's actually a pretty decent three-point shooter the the but i'm just rambling at this point but the basis of shooting is you have to have confidence in your shot you don't think about it 
I think that when you're open, it's a psychological thing. Like, okay, well, I've got this. But then you think about it just like that last second before you release it, and then you miss. I think that's really what this comes down to, is they just don't have the confidence that they're going to make that shot. Well, it's also, you know, no matter how confident Ricky Rubio and Jay Crowder have been, they've been consistently below average three-point shooters, and they're taking consistently above average number of three-point shots, which means, you know, you know, guys are leaving Jay Crowder wide open and he's missing. And as much as I'd love to see, to see Crowder go back to his Boston form, we haven't seen that. Right. And with Ricky Rubio, I know he brings something to the table in terms of playmaking and he's shown a lot of good flashes. But again, there's turnovers and, you know, he can't fulfill the role of point guard, I think, the way Quinn Snyder wants him to. And that his, you know, really good passing isn't showing up enough to to make him worth it. He's been really bad defensively, especially in these playoffs. Mm. And so, you know, again, as much as I love Ricky Rubio as a person and an upgrade there, bring in a guy who's maybe a better, you know, score. That's why I really wanted, I kind of came around to the Mike Conley trade is that Conley's a score. And even though he might tail off soon, it would be such an upgrade in terms of fit because you're getting a good defender and a good score. And there's so much that you can do you know, with the good score, because we saw last year with how good Utah was when Ricky Rubio was, you know, on fire on offense. That's how good the Jazz could be when they had that other score. And, you know, as far as Utah getting another star, it's kind of like they say it's a make-or-miss league, like, like you said. And with the NBA, it's either you have a star or you don't, or kind of in the modern league, a bunch of stars. Because the Jazz have Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, but they need another one. And maybe they don't necessarily need a superstar, but you got somebody in here who can come here and get points. You know, you bring up a guy like Tobias Harris, he's not a star, but he can get points. And there's that, there's that drastic shift that can happen just by bringing in a guy who fits so much better. It happened last year with Jay Crowder. You know, even, even though I bash on his play, there was that change that ended up being drastic because of how much it did in terms of it changed the dynamic of the offense. So Utah needs to bring in guys that will change the dynamic of the offense. And, you know, some players, maybe that'll sacrifice a bit of the defensive efficiency, but we're going to have Rudy Gobert, so there's going to be a level of great defense no matter what. But, you know, again, you think a guy like Tobias Harris, I know one person who keeps standing for uh, Danilo Gallinari, uh, I don't know how I feel about that, uh, mainly based off of injury concerns. But there's a number of players Utah could bring in, either a point guard or power forward, which I think are two of the the key changes that the Jazz have to make mm-hmm. in order to make these drastic changes. Because what we have right now, as much as I love this team, they're not going to win a championship as 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 constituted. We have a bunch of nice pieces. You can go down the list and you can say something nice about every single piece the Jazz have. But nice pieces don't win championships. Mm-hmm. You know, They can help facilitate that. You want to have a bunch of nice players on the bench, maybe a couple of nice players in your starting lineup, but you need to have three or four guys in your starting lineup that you feel confident could go out there and win you a game almost single-handedly. You know, One of the four might be able to do that on a nightly basis. The Jazz don't have that. They have like two and then a few guys who can do it every now and again. So that's... 
I don't, know, I don't know how clear I've made myself. I just I just feel like there there needs to be a change, and that's again I keep using the the term lesson learned. The Jazz need to learn the lesson that what they have right now doesn't work. They didn't learn it last year because they got killed by Houston in the playoffs, and then thought we're going to run it back again and see if it works again. You know the the old cliche, the definition of insanity: doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. The Jazz can't run this team back again and expect a different result. It's it's not going to happen. Yep. I mean, the Toronto Raptors did it for like four years, then they realized, oh yeah, let's improve. Now they're Eastern Conference contenders because they have Kawhi Leonard. Yeah. And and it takes some luck because the Raptors got lucky because Kawhi Leonard became available. And the Warriors got lucky because Kevin Durant became available. And they drafted, they somehow managed to draft Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, and, and all the rest. And then there are a bunch of different things that helped them get better. And you can say that with every championship team. So it, it's going to take some luck, but the Jazz have to try and maybe push it a little bit. Sure, yeah, take some risks. Yeah, so we'll see how this offseason goes. Hopefully they, they kind of learn this lesson, and they can build around Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to mean parting with guys that we love. Now, every time I see Derek Favors out there playing awesome, like he had so many moments in Game 3, you think... You know, if he leaves, it'll hurt. But sometimes you got to make those moves. I mean, the Raptors got rid of DeMar DeRozan. And he was a fan favorite. And DeMar DeRozan loved Toronto. Yeah. He was hurt when he, he left. Mm-hmm. But if you want to win a championship, some, sometimes you got to be a dick. And, I don't know, it, 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 again, it hurts to say that. But sometimes that's that's cold, hard reality of the NBA. You don't walk in to a championship so it's a true story all right that, that that's about all i got is there anything else you wanted to add trey that's kind of we're kind of heavy-hearted here at the what will likely be the end of the season but uh anything else you'd like to add um down down with james harden you know i hope uh, the second round i hope the warriors just give them a really nice reminder as to um why they're a bunch of bitches <laughs> yeah i i will be rooting really hard for golden state and i haven't done that in a long time probably ever yeah i don't know if i've ever really rooted for golden state but i will be rooting for golden state to blow out the rockets by 30 in every single game yeah, and, and would be so satisfied to see them win in four games. Yeah, because I, I mean, I hate the I hate the Rockets. Um, I, I never, you know what? I never. That's not true. I did hate them when Tracy McGrady and Yao Ming were there. But back in the old days, they were just they were just the team that we ended up having to play all the time to get further and further into the playoffs. But they were just good competition. I never hated them at that point, but. It wasn't until T-Mac and Yao Ming were there is when I started hating the Rockets, and boy, do I hate them even more. Yeah, I actually kind of liked Yao Ming, so it's it's hard when you see guys like Chris Paul and James Harden, who I just I hate and have a hard time respecting, whereas you could respect Yao Ming and Tracy McGrady, even if you hate them, which, you know, a healthy amount of hate makes a fandom that much better, uh, as long as it's not racist or anything like that. But we won't we won't go into that, but... Um, so we'll just go ahead and end it here thanks again for listening uh, for allowing us to ramble on uh, this will probably be the last time we talk to you while the Jazz are still technically playing uh, still playing NBA basketball uh, 
if they are still playing basketball by the time of the next podcast, it'll actually probably be really exciting. But otherwise, thanks for listening. Our next episode might be our season wrap-up and season review. We'll probably go into some of our top favorite moments of the season and maybe even play audio clips. We'll see how fancy we can get (laughs) with that. But thanks again. It's been a wonderful season. Hopefully it goes longer, but we're not too optimistic about that. But again, we'll talk to you next week.